0: morning, everyone. Good to see you today. Before I get into the message today, I want to just take a moment uh, to give you an update on uh, what we're planning in terms of uh, construction for the site. Back in October, we had asked you, the church, the congregation, to participate in a survey to help us understand our readiness uh, to move ahead with the next phase of building here on this uh, campus. And based on your favorable responses back in October, it was clear to us that God was leading us to continue to move forward on this project. and So the input that uh, many of you gave uh, at that time back in October has really been helpful for us and has informed us as we've continued to refine and adjust our plan. We moved onto this campus uh, 13 years ago with a master plan that was pretty ambitious, involved three different phases, and pretty early on after we got on site and began to use the campus, we realized that we probably would be better served with a a more realistic, smaller scope of a master plan. And so we've been thinking about you know, what that might look like. And the plan that we presented back in October uh, is to build a new kids' building over where Center Court is right now. So we'd fill in Center Court, put a new kids' building there. And that would allow us to then move the kids uh, from birth through fifth grade into that building, free up this half of the kids' building where the kids are right now, which would allow us to put office space and additional meeting rooms in that side of the kids' building. We would then be able to get rid of that lovely office trailer that sits on our parking lot right now. Uh, In addition to that, we would also be able to then to uh, eventually improve and enhance the the youth area. The youth will stay uh, where they currently are, but we'd be able to enhance that. So two of the main questions that you had uh, in the survey and the input that you gave us back in October was, how is this going to impact our youth sports program? basketball program particularly, and uh, how's this gonna impact parking. So based on that input, we kind of repositioned where we were thinking the kids' building might go and kind of reconfigured some of that court space. And so we're now planning to be able to actually add an additional basketball court. So we're gonna lose center court, but we're gonna go from three courts to four courts in the master plan, so that'll be really great. And then we'll also be able to add 30 additional parking spaces from what we currently have right now, which would be really helpful. Another question that you had asked was, so uh, are we gonna go into debt on this? And the answer is no. Our additional, or our plan is to add no additional debt uh, in order to accomplish the building of the kids' building. And that's why this fall, we're gonna be conducting a capital campaign to raise the funds that will be needed to uh, build the kids' building. Uh, we'll hopefully, prayerfully, maybe start a year or so from now to do that. So I just wanted to give you this update and ask you to please continue to pray uh, as we continue to refine and work on this plan. And I want to share with you a, a verse and encourage you to pray through this verse with me. This is Proverbs th- uh, 3, verses 19 through 20. It says this, By wisdom the Lord laid the, the earth's foundations. By understanding he set the heavens in place. By his knowledge the deeps were divided and the clouds let drop the dew. Now, this is speaking of God's act in creation. Now, of course, We are not doing anything near the scope of God in creation uh, as we begin to make this plan. But what God did when he created uh, involved three elements that are definitely essential as we uh, move forward with this project, and that is wisdom and understanding and knowledge. We still need those three, wisdom and understanding and knowledge. So I'm asking you to join me in praying for these three elements as we continue to move forward this year with the planning part of this. In the wisdom category, I want to ask you specifically that you would uh, pray to God that he would give us wisdom in who we select to work with us on this project. Uh, right now, we are working with a design and build firm that has a track record of keeping costs within budget, which is really important to us, um, but at every phase, we're going to have to decide you know who else are we going to partner with, and particularly when we get to the building side of it, we have to make a decision. Are we going to continue with this firm? or Are we going to pick somebody different? And so just wisdom uh, in who we decide to partner with and get help from as we work forward on this project. The second category is understanding. And I want to ask you to pray for understanding, particularly as we work with the city, kind of understanding on both sides. Pray that the city would would have a heart for and understand what we are trying to accomplish here and how that's going to benefit the community and that we would have an understanding on the city and what some of their concerns uh, might be. We had our first initial meeting with the city this past Wednesday to get their input on what we're thinking about doing, and it was, it was just a great meeting. Very positive, very helpful. Our relationship with the city has always been really good, and it was kind of on display at that meeting on Wednesday. So, but we're gonna be having many more meetings with the city, and so just pray for understanding as we work with the city on, on moving forward with this. And then the last category is knowledge. It's what you don't know that causes all the problems uh, in life and, boy, particularly in construction. So uh, God knows everything. We don't. There's no way we can know everything. And so I'm praying and ask you to join me in pray that God would bring to, surface, to bring to the surface all the issues that we need to know that are critical to the project before we make decisions. So I'm just asking that God would shine a light on stuff that we don't know now that we need to know before we make important decisions. So I ask you to join me uh, in prayer. So wisdom, understanding, and knowledge. Appreciate if you would pray with us on that. So we're really excited uh, about this plan, in particular what it could mean for the future, not only of this church, but uh, the impact that it can make in this community, uh, we think, for generations to come. So just wanted to keep you updated. You'll be hearing more about this as we continue to refine the plan, but just wanted to give you an update on that. So let's go ahead and turn our attention to the message for this morning. So if you took out your message insert, as Ethan mentioned, you can go ahead and take it back out again. In the weeks leading up to Easter, we are considering each of the seven statements that Jesus made during the six hours that he hung on that cross. Today we turn our attention to the grief and the loss that was happening at the foot of that cross. At a distance of now some 2,000 years from that event, we tend to see the cross as a sign. Uh, maybe a sign of our salvation, or some see it as simply a sign of an event in history or a, a religious symbol. But at the foot of that cross on that day was a mother watching her son's life drain from his body minute by minute. There were also dear friends at the foot of that cross who had left their homes and their jobs and had followed Jesus for the previous three years. So while the rest of the crowd looked on and mocked Jesus, this small group who loved Jesus, huddled there and grieved. Now, Jesus was on the greatest of all missions. He was defeating sin and death. And there was this cosmic unseen battle that was being waged on that cross. But in the middle of that great eternal battle, Jesus looks down. And this is what he says in John chapter 19, verse 25 through 27. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, dear woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Now at first glance, it appears to be nothing more than a son making sure that his mother is taken care of after he's gone. And of course, it is that. But I think if we allow our eyes to linger just a little bit longer at this scene at the foot of the cross, there's much more to see than just a loving transaction between mother and son. Jesus described himself not only as our Savior, but also as our Lord. Now. The main thing he was doing on that cross was the job of saving us. He was paying the price of our sin in order to save us from the consequences of our sin. But on that cross, he was also being our Lord. He was leading us, particularly in how to handle the tragedies of life. Jesus knew what we all know, and that is that this scene of grief at the foot of the cross wasn't the first of its kind, and it wasn't going to be the last of its kind. Right now, there are tears of grief being shed all around the world. Many are being shed for the same reason that these were. Someone has died. On Wednesday of this week, my wife's father died. I selected the date and the topic for this message last summer. I had no way, of course, of knowing that this would be the week that our family would be dealing with death. Now, death, of course, is not the only source of tears of struggle and grief. I mean, some tears around this world right now are being shed because of extreme loneliness or maybe the diagnosis of cancer or a personal betrayal or the loss of a job or financial insecurity or... The bad decision of a child. No one plans for these events. We don't put them on the calendar. They just happen. Kind of like an avalanche. I heard an avalanche survivor years ago describe his experience this way. He said, I heard a loud crack, and seconds later, I was buried. That's what an avalanche does. Now, we may never find ourselves in the path of an avalanche of snow, But we will all face circumstantial avalanches, a death, a loss, a betrayal that overwhelms us and literally buries us personally. The question I want to address this morning is how can we survive these avalanches? Jesus was telling his mother, and by extension us, how to survive, what to do, what's needed. I mean, on that day, Jesus died He was buried in that tomb, but I think it would be fair to say as the spotlight shifted from the cross to the foot of the cross, and we look at Mary and the friends of Jesus, that on that day, Mary, his mother, was buried alive. And what Jesus says to her, I think, serves as a tremendous example for us. So this morning, as we look at the foot of the cross, I want to identify two survival tips from the foot of that cross. The first is the importance of relationships. We need relationships. When you're buried by an avalanche, you need someone to help you. Someone needs to help you. If you Google avalanche survival tips, you'll discover that your very best chance of survival is if you're wearing an avalanche beacon that goes off whenever you're buried, so that someone can go to the spot that you were buried and start digging for you. And that's important because rarely, if ever, can anybody dig themselves out of an avalanche. It's just the snow is too heavy. There's too much of it. And it's the same with circumstantial avalanches. Close relationships are are like a beacon that we carry with us. And whenever we're buried, it it signals, friends, that you're buried by life and, and you need help. Because... Rarely can anyone dig themselves out of a circumstantial avalanche. It's just, there's just too much. The top advice for avalanche survival is never travel alone in avalanche country. That's the top advice. Now, we all live in circumstantial avalanche country. We will get buried by life. But sadly, many, many people decide To go it alone in life, to travel in this avalanche country, isolated, alone. And that's a dangerous thing to do. Women tend to be the ones who understand the importance of this vital safety tip. On the day the avalanche struck, Mary was not standing alone. She was standing with a group of close friends. And it appears that most of them were women. Let's go back and read again who who was at the foot of that cross that are named. Near the cross of Jesus, it says, stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. So as Jesus was dying on that cross, the spotlight goes down to this group of grieving women. And it was this gathering of women, whether they were the majority or whether this is just what God wanted us to focus on, it was the women that are highlighted. Because it was the women who seemed to grasp the depth, the emotional depth, of what was happening on that cross. I mean, Mary had been told that this day was going to come. She felt on that day the horror of not just losing her son, but the separation that Jesus would later put into words when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Another statement we're going to look at in a couple of weeks. When Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Those are the words that describe the relationship-ending isolation and impact of sin. Sin is what isolates us from God and then from each other. And so as Jesus took on the price of our sin, he experienced this isolation. Three of the four women who were grieving at the foot of that cross, I don't know if you picked this up, had the same name. They're married, three Marys, one not married. We don't know what her name is, but maybe because it wasn't Mary, it didn't get counted. <laughs> is this just a coincidence? You get a group of four women and three of them are married? That's, that's interesting. Could be, but I don't think this was a coincidence. In fact, I think the reason the other woman isn't named is not because she wasn't important, but because God wanted us to hear the name Mary three times at the foot of that cross. And I think the reason that's important is because the name Mary had a history to it that everyone at this time would know. The book of Ruth in the Old Testament tells of a mother. Her name is Naomi, which means pleasant. She has a husband and two sons. They move away from their hometown to uh, another nation, which was a big deal to do in the ancient world. And they experience tragedy in this foreign land. Her husband died, both of her boys, her sons died. And so she moves back to her home village in Israel, and as she's walking into town and the, the friends that she grew up with come out to greet her, the first thing that she lets them know is that she's, she's decided to change her name. And she asks everyone to call her Mara instead of Naomi. Mara means Bitter. This was what her experience was. and Her life was not pleasant at this time. It was bitter. In time, the name Mari morphed, as names do, and became Mary. So now, at the foot of the cross, are three Marys, three bitters, standing around the cross and feeling the bitterness and the separation of death. I think what was going on in the scene is they were the appropriate emotional soundtrack for what was happening on the cross. Their tears and their name fit. The eternal relationship-ending horror of death was what was being experienced on that cross. A grief that we all feel when death separates us from those we love, but that's a grief that's only a small bitter taste of what it would be like to be separated from God for all of eternity. After Jesus dies, we read that these these women don't just go home. They linger. They follow his body to the tomb. Why? Like anyone who loses someone they love, it's just hard to let go. And they don't just go to the tomb and See him put in the tomb and see him it, see it sealed and the guards posted in front of it, they go back. At least daily. And on the third day, Sunday morning, early in the morning, it was those women again making another trek to the tomb. And they therefore were the first to see the risen Christ. These women. We're leading the way, both at the cross and at the tomb. And honestly, as I look around, it's still happening today. Women are leading the way in this. It's often the women who recognize the importance of relationships. Us guys, we're slow on this. The women almost seem to instinctively know how important relationships are. Guys, we're not so sure about it. I mean, it's often the women in a marriage who tend to sound the early warning signs when something is going on in the marriage that risks the marriage. To which the husbands normally respond, huh? That's the way it's been in my marriage. Again and again, Rebecca has sensed, we're we're not as close as we, and and I'm thinking everything was fine, and then as we talk about it, she was right. She detected it before I did. Here at Seabreeze, it's the women who participate in our growth groups in larger numbers than the men do. We have a lot of guys that do, but we just can't compete with the women on that. Why? The, The women just sense the danger of going it alone in life. But with that greater awareness and greater sensitivity always comes greater vulnerability. Because relationships are a risk. The very thing that allowed Mary to feel the disconnection, the loss so deeply, is what also made her vulnerable to the effects of that loss. Jesus knew that, which is why he told John, who was the disciple he loved, to take care of her. I mean, it appears at this point that her husband Joseph had died. We don't know how, but this appears to be what had occurred. And in this culture, that wasn't just the sadness and tragedy that it always is. In this culture, that left the wife destitute and in need of an advocate. And so Jesus assigned John to dig for her, to help rescue her from the avalanche caused by his death on the cross. Now, I don't think this is just a singular act of great kindness in the middle of great pain. It is that. But again, this is Jesus. He is our Savior and our Lord, our leader. And I've seen God do what Jesus did on that cross again and again and again. He sends someone to go dig. God rarely rescues us directly. He could, but rarely does he do it that way. He sends people to dig for us after the avalanche. And what I've noticed is usually the people that are sent to dig are not complete strangers. Sometimes, but almost never. It's usually the people that God sends to dig are the people that have had a close relationship with the one who's now buried. What that means is our safety task is to connect with other people to build those relationships, to make sure that we don't walk alone in avalanche country through this life, so that when the avalanche comes, we're not buried alone with no one to notice and no one to come dig for us. Avalanche experts say that our natural instinct and tendencies, when caught in an avalanche, are usually completely wrong. For example, one of the things that everybody tends to do, and this is understandable when they're caught in a snow avalanche, is to fight it with everything they can. But it turns out that the best thing that you can do if you're swept up in an avalanche and about to be buried is to relax, that's counterintuitive, curl up in a ball until it's over. The reason that's most helpful is because that allows you to end up with a pocket of air to breathe. And that allows you to survive long enough for help to arrive. It's the same with circumstantial avalanches. Our natural tendency usually is, is oft. Our instinct is off on this. Whenever a circumstantial avalanche hits, we, like a snow avalanche, we fight it with everything we can. We get into the high activity mode usually, and we try to do it all alone but that greatly reduces the chance that we will survive it. Several years ago, when my 16-year-old nephew died of cancer, I didn't want to talk to anyone. I actually, as he was dying, what made sense to me was go go on a bike ride all by myself to San Diego to get busy, do something, pray. It was good. But, What I learned after his death was that my instinct was all off. It turned out, as I look back on that moment now, what helped me most, and as I observed my other family members, particularly my brother and sister-in-law, what helped them and us most was just having people around, particularly people who didn't say much because there's really not much to say. But just having the presence of people who are close with you is more help than I've ever imagined it would be. So we all, both men and women, we need help, especially when the avalanches of life bury us. So the question for all of us is, who are your avalanche beacons? What are their names? Those that you're walking together with and doing life with while you walk in the middle of this avalanche country? Who might notice and who might help come and dig you out? If your assessment is you're too isolated, well, then you've got some work to do. That's okay. Actually, that's increasingly common in this culture. And if you're isolated, I just want to say this. You are going to need to take the initiative. Because the way relationships and friendships work, they don't just come knocking on your front door. They don't just appear. As much as we'd like that to happen, that doesn't happen. It's always as you take the initiative that friendships develop. So introduce yourself to someone, usually many someones. Strike up a conversation. Offer to help them in some way. And if you're on the more introverted side like I, is, you, I, I, I am, you just have to take a breath and extend yourself. If you want friends, the best short advice I can give you is be friendly. Just be friendly. Introduce yourself. You know, honestly, that, that's one of the reasons why we have name tags here at Seabreeze. I mean, I put on a name tag not because no one knows who I am, but just to kind of model it. And actually, it's because I don't know everyone. And as I'm walking up to you, I'm really hoping you got a name tag because that would really help me out. (laughs) Because we may have talked three months ago, and I can't remember your name, and this is going to be embarrassing. And we've all experienced that, right? You've met some and talked to them. Maybe your schedule and their schedule, you just don't run into them, and you see them coming three months later, and you can't remember their name. What do you do? So the name tag just helps, it's a small thing, but it just helps reduce the barrier. It's just a way of saying, we want to be friendly, and we want to help, because we know a lot of us have bad memories. And what's really bad is if it's the third time, and you're like, oh, man, (laughs) that name tag is great. So if you need to work on this, slap on a name tag, Get out your coronavirus fist bump (laughs) and be friendly. Just strike up conversations and do this consistently over time. Safety tip number two, orientation. Safety tip number one is relationships. Number two is orientation. You need to find out. If you're buried by an avalanche, in addition to people digging for you, it's really helpful if you can start digging as well. It's not going to be enough, but it's going to really help. The problem, though, in an avalanche is you have been jostled and tumbled. You have been spun. And so all of your senses have been upended. They've been spun around, and you, you can't. By the time the avalanche is done, you don't know whether your body is facing up or down or sideways or some other angle. You really can't tell. So here's the solution. If you're caught in a snow avalanche and you don't know which way is up, here's what you do you spit. Honestly, that's what you do. You spit. I know it's a little gross, but you spit. The reason you spit is because your saliva will always run downhill. And whichever way that saliva is running, you start digging the opposite direction, and that will be up. Why is that? Why does that work? Well, it's because gravity isn't affected by an avalanche. Before, during, and after the avalanche, up remains up and down remains down. It may seem to you like the world has turned upside down, but it hasn't. It's still spinning on its axis. The moon is still where it was before the avalanche. The sun is still where it is. All the forces of gravity are still in place. And that's because the forces of gravity are external to and bigger than the avalanche. In fact, it's gravity that drives the avalanche. Now, the same dynamic occurs whenever you face circumstantial avalanches. They disorient you you can't find up. Many, if not all, of the familiar markers, emotional markers in your life are no longer visible to you. You are buried. Now, of course, spitting isn't going to help you in this scenario because you're in need of finding up for your soul, not up for your body. You need a different kind of gravity. The good news is before, during, and afterwards, God is still who he is. Truth is still truth. You just are having a hard time finding it. You need to find the gravity that is determined by something other than the weight of the earth and the moon and the sun. You need to find the gravity that is shaped by God himself and his weight. So 33 years before before Mary found herself at the foot of the cross when Jesus was dying, Mary was told how to find up whenever the avalanches of life strike. Her and Joseph had encountered an old prophet days after the birth of Jesus in the temple. And here's the description of that scene in Luke 2, 34 through 35. Then Simeon, who was the name of that prophet, blessed them and said to Mary, his mother. Now notice, Joseph's there, but God knew that Joseph wasn't going to be at the foot of the cross. Mary was. Simeon directed this comment to Mary, his mother. This is what he said, this child is destined to be, to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your soul too. So Simeon said to Mary that this child is destined to be a sign. What's a sign? A sign is a visible direction pointer, tells you which way to go. What kind of direction does the Jesus sign give? Does it, does it tell us east from west how to get to San Diego, how to get to Los Angeles? It's not that kind of sign. Now, the Jesus sign points up from down. It tells us how to determine up from down in life. What does it say? He will cause the falling down and rising up of many in Israel. The idea is this. Some people are going to ignore This sign. They're not going to see Jesus as someone to follow. And therefore, they will be digging their lives into a deeper and deeper hole. Jesus will be the sign that says, You're going down. Things are getting worse. You're digging yourself into a deeper hole. Some, others, will decide to follow Jesus. And they will find themselves rising. They find themselves over time digging up because they've followed that sign. You can see this all around you. This falling and rising effect is going to start with Israel, as it says, because, well, they were the first to see the sign. But the effect was going to go far beyond Israel. In the past 2,000 years, Jesus has been a sign. It's been just what Simeon said he would be. Simeon predicted that he would be a sign that would be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts would be revealed. What does this mean? Why, why would people speak against the Jesus sign? Because they want to go in a different direction. It's that simple. It's usually a heart reason, not a head reason. It's usually because people have already decided they want this. They want to go this direction. Or they want that. And the sign says, uh, you're going down. And they say, I don't care. I think that sign's wrong. So they speak against it. But what's interesting in this statement to Mary is Simeon then shifts his words from the global impact of Jesus, first in Israel and beyond, to the personal impact to Mary herself. His last statement to her was this, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. What does that mean? It's an obvious reference to the scene at the cross. After Jesus died, a Roman soldier pierced his side to confirm his death, pierced it with a sword. This was common practice to verify the death of those on the cross. For Mary, you can imagine like any mother seeing the confirmation of her son's death, that piercing was a soul-piercing event. The big question was this, for Mary at this point, is had Jesus become her sign Or was he just her son? In other words, was Jesus her Savior now and her Lord? This is the decision that everybody has to make. Ethan talked about this last Sunday. If you weren't here, I encourage you to listen to that message. Everybody has to make a decision about this sign. They have to decide it's true and they follow or they have to reject it. And Mary didn't get a pass on this decision just because she was the mother of Jesus. Everybody has to make a decision. Now, we don't see the name Mary for a while after this. The next time we see Mary, the mother of Jesus, is after both the resurrection of Jesus and after the ascension of Jesus back into heaven. Here's the next time we hear Mary's name mentioned in the next book in the Bible, Acts chapter 1, verse 14. It says, they all joined together constantly in prayer along with the women. There they are. And Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Mary and the women gathered with the other followers of Jesus Christ to do what? To pray. I mean, this was the last thing Jesus had told his followers to do. While they awaited the arrival of the Holy Spirit, So the next time we see Mary, after the cross avalanche, she is digging up. How? Well, it's the same way we orient ourselves now and find up. By joining together and collectively looking up. That's what we do whenever we gather. How often did... Mary and the others do it occasionally as their busy schedules allowed? Well, no, it says constantly. This was the beginning, the nucleus of what became the church. And this is what the church does now. If I could summarize everything we do, it's simply around the fact that we gather to keep finding up. That's why we gather. I mean, you may not have had an avalanche this week, but. Life has jostled you around. You've heard a lot of things. You've encountered a lot of challenges. And we gather on Sunday. And the purpose is, so what's up again now? Oh, yeah, right. That's up. So we can dig and move in the right direction. But when an avalanche strikes, the first instinct is usually wrong, remember? A circumstantial avalanche strikes, one of the first instincts we tend to have is, frantic activity. But what ends up determining your survivability is how long you can breathe. You need oxygen more than you need activity, whether it's a snow avalanche or a circumstantial avalanche. So the best first thing you can do in a snow avalanche is to create a spot, uh, carve out a little pl- a place where you can breathe. And that's what we do as a church. We're, we're trying to breathe the oxygen of heaven here. Now, if you're part of a church and a circumstantial avalanche hits, one of the things I've seen that we're all tempted to do is to become frantic with activity, and it just seems like spending time in a church context doesn't make any sense, whether it's on a Sunday or in a growth group or any other activities. Because you're busy. You, life is crazy. But in doing so, by not participating in church, you deprive your soul of the oxygen that you need to survive. But that's not what Mary did. She constantly gathered with others around God and prayed to find up. Here's the principle. Orientation must always precede activity. What we tend to do is get busy and then get lost. But orientate, you have to figure out where's up before you start moving. Now, a number of you here today are probably here because of a circumstantial avalanche. You've been buried by life, and you're struggling to find up. And I commend you for having the good sense of wondering maybe at least whether you might find some oxygen here. You're right. And often what God does in an avalanche is to bring us to the end of ourselves, so that we might seek him and come back to the church or come to the church for the first time. The truth is, we are all living in avalanche country. You just never know when that sudden cracking sound. I don't know if you've ever heard a video or seen an image of an avalanche. It is. It's just a crack in the mountainside gives way. You may be in the middle of the swirl right now. I encourage you to remember one of the greatest avalanche survivors ever, Mary, the mother of Jesus. And what Jesus was pointing out to her, he points out to us. Don't travel alone. Relationships. We need relationships. We need someone to help us when life buries us. And we need orientation. We need to find out. It's as we gather that we have our best chance of finding up and digging up. Let's pray. Jesus, we just marvel at in the middle of all the pain you were going through and all of the great eternal matters that were at stake on the cross that you allowed the spotlight to go to the foot of the cross where we find the human experience of loss and tragedy occurring. We thank you for your direction that you gave to Mary and therefore to us. Father, I pray for those in this room today who have been upended by a circumstantial avalanche. God, I pray that you would send people to find them and dig for them, that they might find help here as they extend themselves and ask for help. Father, I pray that you would bring oxygen to their souls as they gather with your people, as we listen to your word, as they spend time with you during the week. God, I pray that you'd help them survive and find up. We were never created by you to be alone. And we pray that you'd help us to take the next steps that we need to take in order to build relationships. We thank you, Jesus, for your advice and your help, and we pray this in your name. Amen.